Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Thanks to the irresponsible actions of an eccentric naturalist, the island paradise of French Polynesia is host to a number of non-native bird species. However, while not great ecologically, this does provide an interesting opportunity to study some fundamental aspects of evolution and genetics. Which is exactly what we're going to do today, as we discuss the recent heredity paper, Rapid Morphological Divergence Following a Human-Mediated Introduction, The Role of Drift and Directional Selection. At the end of this episode, we also talk a little bit about the need to recognise LGBTQ plus communities in STEM, so please do make sure you stick around for that. Welcome to the Heredity Podcast. First up, can you just tell us who you are? Yes, uh, my name's Ashley Sendall-Price, and I'm a postdoctoral research assistant at the University of Oxford's Department of Zoology, uh, and I use uh, next generation sequencing techniques to study how divergence takes place at the level of the genome. And to do this, I use island colonizing birds, such as the silver eyes of the South Pacific, as a model system. Perfect. So your paper is focused on this group of island birds called the silver eyes, which I kind of can't decide if they look ridiculous or cool or just incredibly startled, but they are very interesting. So maybe you can just tell us a bit about these birds in general and why you were interested in studying these introduced Polynesian populations. Yeah, of course. Um, so the silver eye, it's a kind of small, kind of great tit sized bird that originates from the Australian mainland. Um, and since its origin in Australia, it's colonized a whole load of islands across the South Pacific Ocean. And it's done this over a range of time frames from as recently as hundreds of years to hundreds of thousands of years. So, and not just only over a range of time frames, but also a range of gene flow histories. So some of these populations diverged in isolation on geographically isolated islands, whereas others have diverged despite ongoing gene flow. And this variation makes the silver eye system ideal for studying how divergence takes place at the level of the genome, and also to study how different evolutionary processes, such as gene flow, shape patterns of divergence. So you, you talked a little, or mentioned a little bit about the silver eyes in French Polynesia, and this is kind of a very interesting case, because unlike the other island colonizations by this species, the French Polynesian population is the product of a relatively recent human-mediated introduction. So this species was introduced by a guy called Easton Guild, uh, who I don't know if I'm a, a fan of him or not, because he's kind <laughs> of an interesting guy. But uh, he introduced uh, a handful of individuals of uh, silver eyes to Tahiti in 1937. We actually know the exact date. So they were introduced on the 17th of October, 1937. So he you know, was quite prolific what he was doing. Yeah. <laughs> And after a couple of decades, the species, the ones that were introduced, the population size recovered. And it's now not only just widely spread across the island of Tahiti, but it's also subsequently colonized a whole load of islands across this region. So yeah, Eastern Guild was somewhat of a prolific aviculturist, uh, who in his own words, uh, he says that he liberated more than 7,000 individuals of 59 different species to the island of Tahiti. So Despite being, you know, it's a completely crazy man and such introductions are a bit of an ecological disaster and probably explain the demise of, you know, quite a few of Tahiti's endemic bird species, such as the Tahitian monarch. But if you're interested in studying very early stages of divergence, 
this kind of foolishness is also, well, at least for me, very useful because there are now 13 non-native terrestrial bird species on Tahiti. And these can be used to study the very early stages of divergence from a much clearer vantage point than what we've had before. So yeah, that's kind of a, a little bit of the context about silver eye and a little bit about French Polynesia and this very strange band called Eastern Guild. No, oh, perfect. He he sounds like a very intriguing person and uh, a hero in his own eyes, ecologically probably a bit of a monster, but from your perspective, actually giving you a really good study system. So complicated yeah. bag. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess um, you kind of mentioned a few times what these populations are really good for studying. But I wonder, sort of specifically in this paper, what it was that you were aiming to find out. Yeah, um, so rapid morphological changes um, that follow the colonization of islands are very well documented. And most of these have been attributed to strong selective pressures operating on islands. So we know that islands tend to be you know, very different biotically and abiotically from the mainlands or you know, adjacent islands. But theory actually also predicts that. When populations are founded by very few individuals, the random sampling effect of drift has the potential to drive rapid morphological shifts, even in the absence of selection. So in other studies of natural colonizations of islands by birds, there's very little evidence, though, that such founder-induced morphological divergence can occur. And this could be explained for a number of reasons. So firstly, particularly by silver eyes, natural colonizations are often the product of large founding flocks being blown off course during storms. And as a result of this, founding population sizes tend to be very large, consisting of sometimes hundreds of individuals. Uh, second, because of large founding sizes, these populations tend to recover very rapidly from the effects of population bottlenecks, so there's less potential for drift to take hold. And third, so, uh, such natural colonizations are often subjected to ongoing gene flow from their source population. So if they initially start off being somewhat different just by chance, ongoing gene flow might that quite quickly. Uh, and it's kind of this theory that we set out to test in this paper. So we hypothesize that the human-mediated introduction of the silverite French Polynesia likely represents a much more extreme case of population founding than what we see in natural colonizations by the species. And under such extreme founding conditions, the effects of founder-induced drift might be strong enough to explain rapid morphological changes, perhaps without the need to invoke selective processes. So yeah, that's kind of a kind of a context for why I found this subject interesting and what we wanted to try and answer. No, definitely. It does sound like a really fascinating system. And um, I get the feeling that I'm going to make myself very envious here. But I guess to sort of answer some of these questions, you had to have some pretty epic fieldwork. Yeah, so I kind of, I guess I, I've kind of lucked out a little bit when it comes to fieldwork. Yeah, there, there's definitely many worse places to spend two months of your life than French Polynesia. Uh, a bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so I, I was really lucky that with the support of a heredity fieldwork grant from the Genetics Society, I could visit five of the 11 islands uh, that have silver eye populations. And the islands I visited were Tahiti, which is where the species was originally introduced, uh, and also the islands of Marea, Huahini, Raetia, and Malpiti. Uh, and kind of to give a little bit of uh, context to how fieldwork works, really, it was um, I'd land on an island, I'd spend a few days trying to identify good catching sites, trying to find out where the silver eyes were occurring. And then once I knew that, I'd be putting up mist nets and spending several days in the field, catching the birds, taking them out of the nets, uh, recording morphological measurements. So this could be things like weight and bill length and depth and how long their wings are and how long their tails are. Uh, and then we also took, for the genetic analysis, took a very small blood sample from each of the birds that we caught. And this is kind of a bit analogous to, you know, when you go to the doctor and they take a blood test from your from your wrist. It's a kind of very similar procedure. You know, it doesn't hurt the birds and they're fine and fly off. And then we have our 
nice genetic sample that we can answer interesting questions from. Uh, and then on each island, once I'd caught enough birds, I'd then hop on one of the small French Polynesian planes and set off to another island and repeat all of this again. Oh. But um, it's kind of interesting that uh, so Easton Guild, in his writings about French Polynesia, kind of describes it as being an exotic paradise. And he kind of writes and says that it brings forth a vision of a rich green foliage, brilliant in flowers and exotic birds, but, or it should bring forth those visions. But he also goes on to say that it's, though that's true in respect to the foliage and the flowers of French Polynesia, for some reason there is practically no bird life. And that was kind of his justification for introducing non-native species to Tahiti. And having visited French Polynesia, I could say, of course, there is an abundance of bird life in French Polynesia. Tahiti and the surrounding islands have several endemic species that are really important. But when I was doing my fieldwork, there was you know, some times where I found myself maybe agreeing with Guild a little bit, <laughs> especially when I was on the island of um, Huahini, which compared to all of the other islands I visited, it was practically devoid of birdsong. And I don't know if uh, that was the case, or it was just that it took me several long days to figure out just where I can find the silver eyes. And this was made a little bit more difficult that anybody I spoke to who was there, I'd show them pictures of silver eyes and they'd be like, oh no, we've never seen these at all. So trying to get local knowledge about a bird that nobody knows exists was a yeah, big part of spending two months hopping around paradise. But yeah. Well, I mean, that aspect sounds a bit frustrating, but in general, it sounds like an absolutely amazing experience. And I guess um, it's fantastic that Heredity was able to support you in doing the fieldwork. Um, but I'm really curious about what you did with those samples once you got them. So what kind of things did you do once you got back from the field? Yeah, so um, for this paper, we combine both genetic samples and morphological data to assess the roles of drift and selection in driving rapid divergence following introduction. So we use a restriction site-associated DNA sequencing that allows us to sample single nucleotide polymorphisms. So these are just points along the genome, single base variations. Uh, and once we have those, we do two things. So the first one is Easton Guild, although he recorded the exact date he released, didn't record how many he released, <laughs> which is somewhat irritating. And ironic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really, somebody that records everything else, but yeah, don't record the number you're releasing. But maybe with genetic data and with some of the genomic techniques that exist now, we can actually use demographic modeling from the site frequency spectrum to actually infer past demography. And as part of this paper, we use this to try to confirm that the French Polynesian population was indeed established by few individuals. Um, and we're also able to not only infer the number of individuals or the effective population size at the time of introduction, but also to infer how long that population was bottlenecked for. And then the second kind of big thing that the genetic data was used for in this paper was to do a kind of a genome scan to look for outlier loci that could be putatively under selection, uh, and also trying to associate the genetic variation that we see in these populations with the phenotypic variation that we also see. And from this, we could kind of determine if, one, if there were any outlier positions in the genome that were associated with morphological differences, but also to find whether, if there are outlier regions of the genome, whether they sit at regions where there's genes that we already know associated in morphological differences. So this was all a bit about kind of trying to link genotype to phenotype, which is still a big challenge in evolutionary biology. So the other part is the morphological data that we collected. And this consisted of a range of body and bill size measurements that I collected from French Polynesia, but also from silver eyes that my supervisor during her PhD work collected from New Zealand. Uh, and the New Zealand population represents the uh, ancestral source population for French Polynesia. So as we already know uh, quite a lot about the generation time and the heritability of traits in this species, 
which is based on a long-term study in Heron Island in Australia. We're also able to calculate effective population size required to explain the morphological shifts that we observed by drift alone. So this is about a test to say, well, if we see a certain magnitude of change in bill length, what would be the minimum population size required to explain that shift without having to invoke selection? So just by chance. And then you know, by calculating that, we can compare effective population sizes estimated based from our demographic modeling to test that. So if we're saying for bill length, the minimum population size must be 11. And if our demographic modeling suggests that the effective population size is greater than 11, then we can't explain that by drift alone. We have to invoke selection. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Perfect. Uh, so, I mean, it sounds like you have an incredible amount of data and you've been doing some really quite sophisticated analyses. So I guess the big question is, what did you find? Yeah, so um, I guess there's kind of three kind of things that we find in this paper. So the first one is that by comparing the morphological data from French Polynesian silver eyes to silver eyes in New Zealand, the ancestral population, we can first show that the French Polynesian birds have undergone significant changes in body and bill size and shape, and that these shifts in body size and bill shape can be explained in most instances without invoking directional selection. So drift could account for these morphological changes alone. Uh, and this, in essence, suggests that founder-induced drift may actually occur when populations are established under more extreme conditions than those observed following natural colonizations by the species. But I guess one big caveat to that is that despite this, we do observe signatures of selection operating in French Polynesia. We find numerous regions of the genome that are under selection, uh, and this includes regions that contain genes such as VPS13b, uh, and this gene's been associated with things like bill length in Darwin's finches. So yeah, that's, uh, I guess, the take-home message. No, nice. And I guess you were kind of mentioning earlier that this is a bit of an unusual population because it is introduced. So I wonder what you think this paper is kind of telling us more broadly um, that other people can apply to different kinds of systems? Yeah, I think, um, so perhaps what the broad take-home message or thing that we can think about introduced species is this. So a lot of what we know about the very early stages of divergence is based either on lab studies or based on studying populations that have been diverging for quite a long time. And using, you know, using different techniques, we try and infer past processes. But a big limitation in that is that because time kind of obscures what's going on, that what we find out from these studies might not really reflect, one, what happens in nature, but also what is what really happened in the past. And what I think is quite interesting about introduced species is 
despite being an ecological disaster, that maybe we can actually you know, study processes a little bit closer to when they're happening. Uh, and for me, that's you know, the thing that I found most interesting about this system and about you know, about silt fries. And I think there's a lot of, you know, not just in this species, but in a whole suite of species, there's a lot of opportunity to really provide valuable insights into what is happening immediately following colonization. Now, how do populations establish? What are the changes associated just with the individuals that turn up? And what are the changes that are taking place you know, because of selection? No, perfect. And I guess a silver lining to the uh, strange activities of eccentric nature lovers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, your paper is really interesting and it does have some really cool messages. And I really do hope that people will go once they finish listening and give it a read. But the last thing I want to ask you kind of takes us away from the silver eyes to people, because I know that you are pretty passionate about supporting LGBTQ plus issues. And you recently arranged a whole bunch of activities for LGBT History Month. So, I mean, it, it is a fairly big topic, but I wonder if you could maybe just tell us why you think it's important to recognize LGBTQ plus communities in STEM fields. Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, over the last uh, month, so over LGBTQ plus history month, I've had a, a lot of opportunity, I think, to reflect on this question. Uh, and there was one talk I went to during that month that was really interesting. And there was a kind of a quote, which was along the lines of being LGBTQ plus in STEM has the same challenges as anyone does in STEM, but with the added layer of the burdens and challenges of being LGBTQ plus on top of that. So for me, you know, personally, a big challenge of being LGBTQ plus and working in STEM is that you know, at school, I spent a lot of effort trying not to stand out and not trying to be noticed. But as a scientist, you, know, you have to make yourself stand out. You have to get people interested in your research. You have to go and get on a stage and talk about your work which for me can be at times quite anxiety inducing. So I guess I think it's important to recognize LGBTQ plus communities in STEM because it then gives people like me the confidence to talk about our work. And a big part of achieving that is really creating a culture that celebrates its diversity. And there's been a whole load of studies very recently in the private sector that show that you know, diversity kind of pays that in diverse environments, people work better, they're more productive, you know, they're happier. Um, so yeah, I think that's kind of the core of why I think it's important. It's about you know, standing up and trying to be inspirational people for yeah for the younger scientists that are coming forward. Because when I reflect on what were things like when I was younger, there, were, there weren't those people, there weren't those inspiring figures to give you the confidence to stand up and talk about your work. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a very good message. I mean, it's important that we celebrate the sort of fantastic science that people are doing, but we should also be celebrating the people themselves and who they are and yeah, yeah. supporting all aspects of them. No, exactly. I mean, like the sort of cliched thing is your work is best when you bring your full self to work. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's exactly it in a nutshell. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for sharing your work and some of your personal stuff with us. I guess just to finish up, can you just remind us what your paper is called and if there's anybody that you particularly want to recognize for helping contribute towards this? Yeah, of course. Um, the, so the paper is called uh, Rapid Morphological Divergence Following a Human-Mediated Introduction, the Role of Drift and Directional Selection. Uh, and this is a, like all science, is a collaborative effort. So thank my uh, co-authors, so that's uh, Kristen Ruig at Colorado State University, and my PhD supervisor, Sonia Clegg, who is also at the University of Oxford. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for being on the Heredity Podcast. That's great. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thanks to Ash for taking the time to so enthusiastically share aspects of his work and life with us. This paper really is interesting, so please do give it a read. You can find it on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. 
And before we sign off, let's check in with Kat Arney over at Genetics Unzipped. At 9.05am on September the 10th, 1984, in a lab at the University of Leicester, geneticist Alec Jeffries developed an X-ray film that would change the world. Without intending to, he had invented genetic fingerprinting, a technique for generating a unique barcode from any living thing. Within a matter of months of publishing their paper about the discovery in the journal Nature, Jeffries and his team at the University of Leicester were inundated with requests for help. From paternity suits to immigration disputes and horrific crimes, genetic profiling soon became a mainstay of forensic science and the legal system. In the latest episode of Genetics Unzipped, we explore the accidental invention of DNA fingerprinting and some of the cases that it helped to crack. We hear the story of Andrew, a 13-year-old boy at the centre of a long-running immigration dispute, which was the first case to be solved using the technique. We also delve into true crime territory to find out how DNA profiling helped to exonerate an innocent suspect and capture the true killer of two Leicestershire schoolgirls, Dawn Ashworth and Linda Mann. Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Come on, if you're here, you must want to listen to that. Go check it out. But for us, that's it. You can subscribe to the Heredity Podcast on all good podcast platforms, and you can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm James Bergen. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>